You're listening to a sermon from Garden City Church in Beaumont, California. For more information, visit GardenCityChurch.co. If you guys would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, whether you have a physical Bible, your digital Bible, or the screen above me, we're going to be reading Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23. If you are able to this morning, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we hold his word true and with authority that it wants to speak into our lives. There's a reason you are here this morning, and I believe that God wants to speak to you in a very special and unique way as the Holy Spirit prompts us to not only see these words, not only to hear these words, but then to live these words as well. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his, inglor- of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, when he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, not only now, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I titled my message, The Unselfish Prayer. Over the last few years, we've seen this trend in the church create some tidal waves. It seems like it began during the COVID shutdown. I'm sorry if that's a trigger word for you, but we are still dealing with its aftermath after these few years. Apparently, the WHO, the World Health Organization, just released a statement a few weeks ago declaring the COVID pandemic to be over, and we're thinking it's about time you caught up with society. I get it though. It was tumultuous. It was an unknown reality. It left its mark. And some of the aftershock of it all, the church was and still is affected by what took place. Churches and their pastors began drawing hard lines between certain beliefs and didn't just hold it for themselves and calling their church to live it, but began making it and projecting it as something that every church must do. And if that church did not do what they did, then they were not deemed worthy of being called a church. Some of those things were a church should not be setting things up outside in the courtyard for church when COVID was still something we weren't aware of. You must be back in your building when for centuries pastors would preach from their pulpit inside their churches, reminding people that church was never about a building, but about a body. But for some reason, it then became about the building. Church began drawing lines on how to reconcile racism and social justice. And of course, that sparked the debate of what those terms even mean. If you didn't agree with one side or the other, you were, you know the word, canceled. 
I heard a pastor the other day who posted a little video to his Twitter feed, and he said this quote, if you have not been canceled, and he's talking to pastors, he says, pastors, if you have not been canceled yet, you are not doing your job and your faithfulness to the word of God is gone. I thought to myself, and you call yourself a pastor. And yet, the goal seems for many is to get canceled, to rile up the opponent, as many will call other human beings. Is that my goal, to be canceled? Or is my job to be faithful to the text and to preach the word of God so that people might be saved? There are many other topics we can draw attention to. But the main point that I'm trying to get at this morning that I think might be fueling and motivating this sort of narrative inside the churches is that we are a bunch of selfish people. Can I get an amen? Now, see, I'm, I'm thankful that you said amen because not many want to think, well, man, do I say amen to something like that? Which then in turn would probably make you more selfish and it would rile your ego and your pride anyway, right? If there's anything we can do about that, as we often say, to keep us humble and to make us holy, it is to pray for others. That is what we see here. Maybe you heard the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. These are different types of prayers. There are prayers of adoration. There are prayers of confession. There are prayers of thanksgiving. And there are prayers of supplication. All have their place when we are praying to God, but oftentimes our prayers end with just supplication. We don't always pray to just simply adore Christ. We do pray to confess Christ. We sometimes pray to give thanks for Christ, but often it is asking God to supply us with something. And so the point proves itself even in the spiritual things. Most times my prayers are for me. When I need something, when I am on the brink of a panic attack and I don't know how to process this thing that I'm dealing with, and maybe you do that too, you pray. Or you need the answer to a job interview or the big family decision, the wish of being healed. And let me tell you, those prayers are great. Please don't find yourself not praying those things. But let me tell you this, if you find yourself praying, Would you simply look at what it means to trust in the creator of this world to be the source from which your healing comes from, that he be the providential source in your life? But let me add another element of your prayer life. Maybe it's looking at how to pray for other people. And not just when they're facing the same list that we just mentioned about ourselves, when they need healing, when they have a big family decision, when they need an answer, Don't let that be the only moment you pray for other people. Point number one this morning, the reason for praying for others. Paul tells us in verse 15, for this reason. Now that, if we can look back at verse 14, says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Paul does not just pray for the people in Ephesus because he received a list of their wants and needs. What stirs Paul to pray? It says, because I have heard of your faith in Christ and because I know your love for other people. So thinking about that perspective of Paul's, essentially his leadership in the church, 
How many of us have ever been able to come before the Lord in prayer and have been reminded of someone just because of their faith in Christ? I'm going to pray that the Lord would bless that person. Or because I recognize their love for the saints in the church is very unique and very different. I'm going to pray and ask that God would bless them. Paul says, I pray for these people, not because they have ailments, not because they have financial needs, although those are all valid reasons to pray. He just says, I remember you because I've heard of your faith in Christ and because you love the saints in the church. So then the question we must ask ourselves this morning is what causes me to pray for others? Maybe at their request to you on their behalf, it's a sickness, a financial need, a family problem. And maybe you're thinking, huh, no one asks me for prayer. Maybe you seem so wrapped up and consumed by your own needs that people can see that you may not have time for them. Let me be the first to apologize because I know I can be that way. I think we all can. And I don't have time for you to ask me to pray for you because I have my own list of prayers that I need answered as well. But I think we all can be like that. I don't think any one of us are innocent in this matter. If you are innocent, please come find me because we would love to give you all of our prayers because you seem to have everything in order. Maybe you should come up and preach a lesson as well. I would love to hear that. Maybe you've treated others like I have when they ask for prayer. I will pray for you. And then off I go and out goes the request from my mind because I'm trying to figure out whether I should go to In-N-Out or Thai Chili. Those are obviously the places I think about after Sunday food. For some reason, it hits differently on Sundays. So rather than telling someone you will pray for them, maybe you know where I'm going with this. What am I going to say? Pray for them right there on the spot. What a practical approach. As something as simple as, can you pray for me? I need this. Rather than saying, yes, I will pray for you. You can say, yes, let's pray right now. And the power of that not only shows your willingness to set aside your own pride and your own needs, but that you are bringing these requests before the Lord as well. And yet still, there are times that we don't do this. What is the reason? Maybe it's that we just don't care. We don't have time. We can't think of anyone else's requests, again, because we have our own. You think maybe you have a wish for them of uh, hopefully their well-being being taken care of, but maybe not by my hands. Maybe they can go and ask someone else for prayer. So then let me ask you this. When was the last time you prayed for someone other than yourself because you were encouraged by their faith in Jesus or because you genuinely thought, man, I love this person? Now, this idea might seem revolutionary, and yet it shouldn't because this is Paul's posture towards believers in the church. In fact, we read in Colossians when he was reading, when he was writing a letter to that church, we see in Philippians when he was writing to that church, every single time he said, I think about your faith all the time. I think about your love for other people and it causes me to pray for you. It causes me to thank God for you. What posture then, as I ask myself this question, you ask yourself this as well. What posture then do I have towards other believers in the church? Often when we come to gather together and we have that fellowship moment that we're all aware of and we enjoy, hopefully, if you're like me, when we first started doing it, it was awkward. 
You had to go out of your way to say hi to someone and to converse with them. And it feels weird sometimes because sometimes we'd rather just be scrolling during the fellowship moment and hope that the these people would just go away. But what we've been asking is a question, not, Lord, what do you have for me today? Because re- remember, every single morning you wake up, what does the Bible say? That God's mercies are new towards you every single morning. God has something for you every single morning. That is by default. You don't even need to ask for it, and it's already there. God's mercies are brand new every single morning. You thought today's mercies were great? Wait till you wake up tomorrow because his mercies are going to be that much sweeter. And the day after that, you don't even ask for it, and yet it's right there for you. That's the reality of what we can by default believe about who God is and how he loves us. And so we've begun asking this question for some time now. Lord, who do you have for me today? Lord, who do you have for me today? Because that is not always evident. Even the who, sometimes we are like, well, I'm the who. I am the who that someone else needs to pray for. And I would agree with you. And I'm the who sometimes too, but not always do we have the opportunity in front of us to recognize that every single morning, not just here on Sundays, because I do believe that there are amazing relationships between each and every one of you that are taking shape, but it takes time, doesn't it? It takes time to build those relationships. So keep pursuing the other person. But then also that question can be asked every single morning when you wake up. Lord, who do you have for me today? If you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you know first and foremost that that who is your family, but you know that there are other interactions that are going to take place in the classroom, at your work site, on the phone. There is going to be a who somewhere in that day. And sometimes we overlook it because we're hoping maybe there is no one today and I can just go about living my life not having to talk to any who today whether it's at the grocery store or the Instacart person or the nail salon or you're getting your hair done or you're having to get your oil changed. What about them? Aren't they a who also? I wonder if we might have opportunities in front of us to be able to practice and exercise that. I think there's so much beauty in thinking about others more than ourselves, which in fact Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, says that when we think of others' interests as better than our own, we are actually putting on the mind of Christ. And so I understand that we think that there are times when we are the who that someone needs to reach out to, but what if you reached out to someone and they reciprocated that feeling towards you as well? One of the things that I began practicing once we first moved into our house about a year ago is I started walking our neighborhood. I I I like to walk to clear my thoughts. I don't put any headphones in unless I'm listening to an audio Bible. I like to listen to the Bible sometimes because I can't read and walk at the same time. I'm not multitasking experts like some of you are. And so I will listen to the audio Bible and I'll, for the first mile and a half, I'll listen to that. But then the next mile and a half, the Lord just kept prompting me, pray for your people. And I was like, who are my people? And he's like, you idiot. Like, aren't you a pastor? Like the people are your church pray for your church. And so I was like, okay, well, who comes to mind? And I would, I would visibly take a picture just like this. And I would imagine 
each of you in the seats that you're in today, although some of you are in different seats than normal, so the faces are a little off, but I'm working on it. But then as that started happening, I was asked to be a part of a panel discussion where um, myself and a few other young guys who have planted new churches recently were asked the question about what the difference was from when we pastored at our previous churches and how we are pastoring at these new churches that have been planted. And I have a new pastor friend in the Long Beach area. His name's Chris Kirsch. He pastors Renovate Church. He came from a church here in the Eastville area and planted in Long Beach about four or five years ago, I believe. And we both answered that our dependence on prayer has been more crucial than ever before. And not just in prayer mode, that puts me into all of my requests before his throne, but the prayer walks we began doing around the same time. As I started doing my walks, I was prompted by God to start praying. I'll tell you, it was the hardest thing. Like, I don't want to pray right now. I just want to like, I need to clear my head. And God's like, how do you think you do that, bro? Like that wasn't, he didn't actually say that, but you can imagine like the, the conviction of something like that. Like, how do you think you're going to clear your mind? How do you think you communicate with me? And it was around that same time that Chris started walking his neighborhood in Long Beach. And I started walking my neighborhood here in Beaumont. And both of our hearts were stirred by the Holy Spirit to start these prayer walks. And I try to walk usually every other morning. And I find myself, uh, please don't see this as arrogance. I find myself like utterly dependent on this because I never took advantage of what was right in front of me. And I think sometimes as a church, we feel that same way as well. And so I do out of dependence on the Lord. And sometimes in my stubbornness, I don't pray for people, but the Lord has continued to place that on my heart, that this is something as we depend on God, what is the one thing that's going to remain the same? It is Christ, Hebrews says. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it's not just about praying for your needs, but praying and pleading with the Lord that you would continue to strive towards faith in Christ and that you would love the church and the people in it. And for Paul, anytime he prayed, he thanked God for the believers. Although they lived in a hostile environment where Christianity was marginalized and Christians had suffered persecution, they held firmly to their faith. And I have to wonder, and maybe you do too, was it Paul's prayers on their behalf that strengthened the church to become who they didn't even know they could become? But notice, this is not a blind faith, but a very specific faith. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. The Ephesian Christians did not confess the god Artemis or even Caesar as Lord as everyone else in their culture and city did. Indeed, Jesus is their Lord, and they embraced the power of an intimate union with Christ. You see, it's not just an intellectual affirmation of Christian belief, but it is a source of grace and strength to each and every one of us that will not only help you survive, but thrive in this world. So the reason for praying is because of your faith in Christ and because you love the people in the church, what then do I pray that they would then experience? Point number two, what to pray for others. Paul answers that in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and that he may give you the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of God. You see, there are many ways that people perceive or think about God. They can think of him informationally. We talked about this at our men's breakfast the last few months. This is coming from Dr. Tony Evans of a a pastor in Texas. He says, we can think of God informationally. We gather data. We study the word. We're quoting doctrine. And we think, yeah, I know God informationally. I studied the facts of what I see here compared to other religious entities. I can quote doctrines and things that I can think of him informationally for sure. Some may think of God as philosophically. They see him as a concept or an idea. Maybe you've heard that term before that Jesus was a good teacher. Some know him religiously. They reference God. They say grace at the dinner table. They call that a connection with God. But we know if you've ever read scripture before, God is after so much more than that. God wants to be known in three ways. It'll come up on the screen. He wants to be known relationally. He wants to have a relationship with you. How do you have a relationship with someone? You invest. You get past the awkward stages. You spend time with them. You learn what they like and what they don't like. What foods do they like? What foods do they not like? The fact that I have to go eat sushi with other family because my wife does not like that. I I wish I would have known that before we got married. Just waking you up, making sure you're awake. God wants to be known relationally. There is a two-way street here, people. God wants to be known experientially. Matthew 17, Jesus takes his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what do they experience? Not a knowledge of God. They see Jesus in his glory. And he's with Moses. And of course, Peter is like, let's build tents and like, let's never leave this place. That was the experience of Jesus in Matthew 17. And God wants to be known intimately. He wants to be known relationally, experientially, and intimately. Meaning, he doesn't want you to have any other gods before him. Meaning that he wants your heart undivided from anyone or anywhere or anything else. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 says, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. Imagine being able to comprehend the mysteries of God, to have your understanding enlightened by the very Spirit of God. That's what Paul says. I am praying for you because I want you to have this. I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened to this gospel. This is the transformation that Paul prays for his readers, that they may be lifted out of darkness and into the light of knowledge. It's with this enlightenment, they will be able to fully grasp the wonders of God and all that he has in store for them. Perceiving with the eyes of faith is a profound way of seeing beyond the physical realm. It allows us to tap into a deeper understanding of our world and to connect it with our innermost selves of who God is creating us to be. So I hope 
And I pray that you would be able to embrace this powerful perspective and to open your hearts to the wonder that lies beyond what meets your eye. But isn't that how we always get in trouble with idols? Whatever we can see, whatever we can feel, whatever we can smell, we say that looks better than God sometimes. And what Paul is praying for the church and what we pray for this church is that your eyes would be enlightened to see that, that what Christ has to offer to you is anything better than you can touch or smell or see or hear. That you would not allow yourself to fall short of believing that those things have the God-like ability to serve you and to love you the way that Christ does. Because there is a danger when we have seen the gospel and when we fall away from it. And this is also another way that we pray for you. Hebrews 6 uses this same word that Paul says about having your, the eyes of your heart enlightened. That word enlightened is also in Hebrews 6. And the author of Hebrews says, For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to to public shame. Those are some harsh words. I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know that was in scripture. I've read Hebrews 6 so many times. In fact, what's funny is when I was looking in my Bible, I had everything else in in another Bible I used for study. And I had everything else around it underlined and written around. And this part was not underlined or written around. Because it's hard to think, wait, it's impossible to bring someone back to repentance who has experienced the Holy Spirit and who has then turned away from God. And it says it's impossible to bring them back to repentance because they've rejected the Son of God. That's not very encouraging. How how then does God do that? Well, we believe, number one, that Jesus says that with me, all things are possible. But oftentimes it's not Jesus's unwillingness to see what they've done and being willing to forgive it. What it is, is it's the person's unwillingness to accept God back into their lives because they are unsure if he actually has the ability to bring them back. A lot of times people think, well, why did this even happen in the first place? Why did I fall away from God? Why did I not believe in God? And some would say, well, maybe you were never saved to begin with. That's a debate that we'll never fully know the answer to on this side of heaven. But I know that there are times where this can explain a little bit what usually discourages someone from losing their faith. Usually it's suffering. There's so much suffering in our world, so many experiences that we cannot conceive that make sense to our finite mind. You see, we are limited in an understanding where we cannot tap into all the things in which God can see. Hebrews 10.32 says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful 
even though it meant terrible suffering. Oswald Chambers says this about suffering, quote, no healthy Christian chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Jesus, again, never promised a life without suffering. He didn't say, come to me and you will suffer no more. He didn't say that you would not have trials and temptations. What he, in fact, even encouraged us was to think heavily about following Christ because he said, if they persecute you, just know it's because they persecuted me first. You're guilty by association. But he says, in me, you can have peace. John 16, 33, you may know it. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And so it is crucial to be aware of the danger at hand, but do not let it discourage you, but rather let that motivate you. Because we are reminded here of the undeniable evidence of the good fruit of God's word and the spirit that he is already producing that in your lives. So let us hold on to this truth and continue to trust in God's guidance. Hebrews 6 continues after those harsh words, but he says, Dear friends, even though we're talking in this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as your life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises. Again, Ephesians 1, you have an inheritance because of your faith and because of your endurance. It is crucial that we understand the significance of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian saints to grasp these three spiritual realities. Three things that Paul wants them to know as he prays for them to have these things. Number one, to know hope. Number two, to experience the riches of the inheritance. And number three, to understand the greatness of God's power. I don't know if you know who Tim Keller is. He, uh, a giant in the faith, has written some incredible books. Uh, he just passed away on Friday at the age of 72. Great man of God. He's written a ton of great books, did a lot for the church. He has an incredible new biography that was written about him about a year ago. I encourage you guys to pick it up and read it. It talks about his humble beginnings, how he was a pastor in a rural, rural area, a pastor of about 20 people. And the Lord continued because of his faithfulness and because of his integrity and his character, continued to use this man of God. Tim Keller, what's interesting and unique about him is that he didn't start writing books until he was about 58 years old. Some people, when they become pastors and they're young, they're like, I know how to write books. I know how to be influential. I'm going to write all kinds of weird books. And sometimes those books come off a little weird at times. But when you're a seasoned veteran like he was, when he pastored for over 40 years, he says this about hope, which he doesn't have to hope anymore because it's his reality. He says this, quote, 
Our Christian hope is that we are going to live with Christ in a new earth where there is not only no more death, but where life is what it was always meant to be. I love that. Because what we hope is that that's true, right? How many of us actually know that that is true? Well, we believe it to be true because the word tells us, but I've never seen it personally. I don't think you've seen it personally, but we hope in that and we believe in that. And that is the hope that we hold to that even when the suffering comes, like we mentioned a few moments ago, we hold our hope not in that what things here around us will hopefully change. They may never change. In fact, they may get even worse. But that makes our hope that much more sweet. You see, Paul's audience had no hope. They were without God in the world. Ephesians 2, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Before they heard and believed the gospel, they had no hope. They had nothing. Those who had given up hope were given a reason then to hope by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. There's a book called the New City Catechism. It's something that we use with our kids and we do it around dinner time. We ask them these simple questions that are biblically based. And one of the first questions, if not the first question, is what is our only hope in life and death? If you go up to my kids today, they they may not remember it because it, it's been a while. That was question one. We're on like question 50, but we're working on it. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Wow, what a sweet statement. What a rich sentence. That we are not our own, but belong to God. You see, the Ephesians came to know the greatness of God's power the very same power that raised Christ from the dead, that seated him at God's side and gave him authority over all things. But I have to ask the question, are you someone who belongs to God? Do you operate in your own strength, in your own power? Well, I am I. I am my own. I don't belong to God. I wonder if we could change that today, that you are not your own, but you belong to to God, which brings us to point number three, the source of hope, riches, and power. When we see in verses 19 to 23, we see that what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Interesting things about this whole dynamic of Jesus being raised from the dead and then seated at the right hand and in the heavenly places. First, Christ is sitting, which signifies that he is Lord. Jesus is sitting on a throne, not a regular chair, not some cool tent camping chair that you get at Costco. Have you seen those, by the way? I was at Costco last week and I saw this awesome chair. I already bought one last year. My wife was not happy about it, but this chair reclines. Okay, it's a camping chair. This chair reclines, but not only that, it has like a a foot stand. I don't know what it's called, but your feet can recline as well. And then on top of that, it's got even better cup holders than the flimsy one in the arms. It's $80, but man, hey, if anything was worth 80 bucks, it would be a really nice camping chair. Don't tell my wife I already bought it. 
I'm just kidding. I didn't buy it. Which means if Jesus is sitting on a throne, it means that he is currently ruling as the king of the world. And again, we've said this before. Does it feel like he is? Sometimes it doesn't. Why is this law passing? Why is this person the way they are? Why is this the person in power? Lord, do you actually know? Maybe you've let California go. I don't know. No, I don't think he has. Because we don't believe in the ruling and governing authority as the ultimate authority. Romans 13 says that God positioned certain people in those places. We can debate that later. But the whole point is that this means Christ is currently ruling. The resurrection says that he will live forever, while his exaltation says that he will rule forever. So his resurrection is, oh shoot, this guy, he was dead and now he's not. He's going to live forever. If he can conquer death, then nothing can stop him. If he is also ruling and being praised for that, the fact is that he him sitting means that he has finished his work on earth. Second, it says that Christ is seated at God's right hand, which is a sign of honor and power. What's interesting is that when the Bible says that Jesus is sitting at God's right hand, this is not meant to be taken literally. The Bible says that God is spirit, which means that he doesn't have a right hand or a real chair to sit on. At his right hand is a metaphor for respect and status as well as power. Third, Christ is seated in the heavens, which shows that he is important. His seat is not, again, just a chair on earth. Even if there are other kings, none of them are like him. In fact, he is, as we know, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And from his throne, he rules over all spiritual forces in the world, whether they can be seen or not. I don't think there's any way that we can deny the fact this morning that Jesus is the ultimate authority. You see, Paul himself emphasizes this by stating that Jesus has been exalted far above anyone who can ever rule, by anyone who would ever think they have authority and over power and dominion. It is clear that Jesus is the one true leader and should be praised as such. Imagine then being able to fully comprehend the extent of Jesus's supremacy. And that's exactly what Paul does by piling up these four terms, each with their own unique details. In all of this, Paul is saying, I pray that you remember your hope, that you remember you have an inheritance coming, and that you remember the power of God in your life. I think we all need that reminder this morning, but what we're going to do even better yet, after service, I want you to find someone and I want you to pray over them. And I want you to pray those things over them. Lord, I pray for this person that they would know the hope that they have in Christ. The hope that they know that even though things in this life may be weird and confusing, you are not. Lord, I pray that you would allow that person to remember their inheritance. Lord, I pray that they would remember your power. Don't try to slip out unannounced after church. It's too easy to do that but maybe this is exactly what you needed to hear today. In fact, it is because this has been scheduled for some time. This fact, this reality that we are here in Ephesians and today talking about 
praying for other people signifies that there is a need in each and every one of us to pray over other people. Let us consider the fact that Christ has been given a position above all others. And the beauty of it is that that position is permanent. And so here's our application. Christian, if you're a believer in this room here today, do you seek the well-being of other believers and do you seek the truth-telling to non-believers? I think sometimes we do one or the other. We don't usually see them simultaneously. Do you seek the well-being of other believers and do you seek the truth-telling to non-believers? If you're not a believer here this morning, only Christ can guarantee that your future be secure. When earthly wisdom doesn't work, would you consider turning to the godly source of wisdom, the word of God, and watch God give you what you need? And then finally, corporately, as a church, are we a praying church? Are we a thinking church? And are we a caring church? Tim Keller, many pastors I know are quoting Pastor Tim Keller today just because this is the first Sunday after his passing. But he says this about the gospel and it never, it, I've never come across, apart from Jesus's words himself, I've never come across a better way of explaining the gospel. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Three questions to close out our time together before we partake of communion and before we pray corporately for each and every one of you. Number one, how is God calling me to think differently? What have I thought coming in today that maybe is starting to change and the spirit is starting to stir my heart, maybe to give my life to Christ or maybe to finally get into the word that I've been neglecting for some time? Number two, how is God reordering your heart's affections? How is God reordering what you love? And number three, what is God calling me to do today about it? What can you do right now? So often we think, man, I have a lot of work to do in my relationship to Christ. I got a lot of work to do. You know, the best way to start is just by starting. Just commit to one thing. You know what? Maybe I haven't been waking up early enough to read God's word, or maybe I haven't been praying, or maybe I need to, whenever you think that is. The Holy Spirit is good at guiding us and allowing us to figure out what that is. Would you consider what you need to do today about it? Let's pray as we now ready our hearts to prepare to receive communion this morning. I know that that's a heavy weighted subject we have. Ephesians, if you've ever read it and being in depth like this, it's, it's like weighty. It's like, man, what did I just learn? That's why we pray at the end, Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Because sometimes it doesn't always make sense. And sometimes it feels all over the place. The Spirit is good at lining everything up according to his plan so long as you're willing to commit to his plan and not trying to create your own. Let's pray together.